Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. For today's show, I'll be doing a Q&A based off user questions posted on Instagram. We're going to be going over sprint and jump topics, microdosing and training setups, foot training and fascial systems, and more. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the Free Lap Timing System, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The Free Lap Timing System has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 71. So today we're going to be answering some user questions. Just posted them uh, on Instagram a few days ago and I was really pleased and impressed not only with the questions but also the the level of people and coaches who are tuning in asking them so if you ask the question thank you so much and it's great to know that not only are you listening to the show but you're also processing and, and thinking and considering of what the guests are saying and it's just been a blessing for me to have the uh, brilliant minds on so far that we have had on the show so let's get right into it with some of these questions um, like I said in the quick intro uh, we're going to be going over things related to sprinting technique and jumping speed training uh, we're also going to be going a little bit into questions on recovery martial arts training good books as well as uh, a lot of specific questions on the foot and fashion. I get that a lot ever since I had uh, Chong Ji on the show. And man, that was a, a groundbreaking episode, I'll tell you. So uh, just uh, <clears throat> looking forward to getting to these today. So let's uh, let's get on to the first one. Okay, so first question of the day is from LEG32, which is as follows. I recently heard a podcast with Cal Dietz, uh, Strength Chat, and he said, you build the tendons through repeated plyo efforts. I've also seen a video of Louis Simmons talking about using jump stretch bands for high and fast reps to build the tendons and also doing 200 plus hamstring curls with ankle weights to build the tendons. I've also been doing lots of jump rope lately to build the Achilles using the same above info. And I'm wondering what other kinds of plyos could be done to build the tendons. So uh, this is an excellent question. I, I really am happy to answer this because it's something that not only have I thought about for years, probably well over a decade, but I've also, I feel like I've almost had some extra keys handed to me recently, uh, particularly by people such as uh, Chongji. So the uh, first thing I'd like to say is any plyos will build your tendons. So anything that utilizes the stretch shortening cycle is going to put a premium on tendon development. Um, but the key in my perfect world for athletes is uh, plyometrics in a high package of variability. So what that means is just doing a lot of different types of plyos. And probably the easiest way I can describe this 
is the difference between uh, basketball season and high jump. So all the time it happens where an athlete will be playing basketball, you know, usually they're going to go to each game and be jumping pretty similarly because they're doing all sorts of different types of jumps, highly variable, in addition to accelerating and decelerating and all these things. And then they go out to track season, and their track coach just every day has them do a full approach high jump, which is very common. Uh, no like different variations of the jump or anything like that, just full approach high jumping every day, see how high you can jump, okay, cool, go home, come back a couple days later, we'll do it again. And what happens with this over time is athletes lose their spring. They go down, down, down. So why is this? Well, it's uh, because the, the their variability is being lowered. They are basically doing the same exact jump over and over again, which is loading the tendons, the muscles, the bones along the exact same lines of strain and force over and over again. And the body, the brain is pretty darn smart. It says to the body, uh, if we keep doing this and I keep letting you jump higher in this exact same pathway over and over again, eventually I'm going to get hurt because this is overuse. And so to build tendons, you have to build along different, subtly different lines of stress by using different types of takeoffs. And, and it doesn't have to be crazy and, and dramatically different, but just different takeoff angles, different means and methods, different surfaces like grass and those types of things. So now that's like the best thing that I would say. And obviously, lower intensity and, and very fast contact is generally better for doing that job of specifically building the tendons. Uh, the, the easiest way you could even really say that in terms of like the foot and the, the foot glute connection is that hyper arch hop that Chong Ji has a YouTube video on where it basically just a, it's just a diagonal line hop with a little bit of knee bend. Uh, with a specific type of ground contact. It's kind of like Jay Schrader's low foot ankle hops. And doing those is great too. Uh, all that stuff where uh, if you're in a squat or a partial squat, you're going to be loading that lower leg and shin. So all these things are, are good plyometrics. And again, you want to get a big variety. You want to get a big variety of lower, relatively lower intensity. Uh, using depth jumps to create that stimulus is not necessarily the best idea because you're going to fry your nervous system uh, before you get a chance to really build up those tendons. So playing team sports is huge. Playing barefoot, running on um, like even even something like barefoot running on grass or trail running and these things even offers um, benefits. So I wouldn't say there's not a magic thing. It's more kind of like a it's almost more like a lifestyle of doing a lot of just a lot of stiff ankle, minimal footwear, based repetitive based work to supplement your other training and obviously not letting that repetitive work um, be so great that it gets the expense of your actual high powered stuff but there's been great athletes over the years who are do just fine in the fashion department by playing their sport and practicing jumping all the time and so i don't think there's a insane volume it just it's something that does build up for over years and years and years though so going out and trying to expect to have extremely stiff tendons in a very short period of time probably isn't going to happen. It's something that happens uh, long over time. And as that does happen, you can start to see the changes in the body and the feet adapt to the fascia becoming stronger. Next question is from SB James. He asks, what adjustments have you considered after your interview with Mike Boyle about training? So this is a fantastic question. Um, I've been con actually, before I had the honor of having Mike Boyle on my podcast, I've been familiar with his stance on front and back squatting for some time. I think that it's very, uh, for a lot of strength coaches, especially, uh, or sports performance professionals, especially those who got into the industry because they enjoy, they really enjoyed the weightlifting side of things, or the, maybe they were a power lifter or an Olympic lifter. It's very 
very difficult to depart with some of these sacred cows because for a lot of strength coaches that is the the we get into coaching because we we want to do these things that that we like doing and so all of a sudden it's like oh well now I, I i'm not using this thing with my athletes that i really like doing and i got a lot out of this is making it more boring for me or whatnot um i was actually came into the industry a little bit um i would say maybe a, a sideways move <laughs> i was actually originally a full-time track and field coach and then then strength and conditioning at the school but my initial passion was doing full-time track and field and at the end of the day what it's always been for me is is how fast does an athlete run and how high do they jump and the max numbers are are only just or even the exercises you use are very simply a means to an end there so i've never really been truly married to any exercise i kind of use the spectrum and then use that to dictate responses but i will say after listening to mike's uh talk it both in person and then especially afterwards in the editing where it kind of resonated a little bit it's just nice to hear um, at length uh, Mike go in in um, in depth on exactly why he has taken it out, but then also the performance results he's got outside of using it. So I think a lot of us are, uh, I think once you get past the assumption that you must back or front squat heavy to achieve a particular, say, vertical jump result or 40-yard dash result, once you start throw that out the window, or if you can throw it out the window, it really, I think, psychologically helps a lot of people helps a lot of people uh so i'll just say for me personally i i had already kind of been on that road of getting rid of the back squat with at least my university populations i still use it for say some of the online dunk athletes that i that i train and, and those types of things but it's uh at the end of the day um for like a team sport athlete or a situation where uh, well, working with swimmers, especially you, you really want to be careful putting bars on people's backs. And at, you learn over the years that if somebody just misses uh, one week of training time, uh, one, one person, on the whole team, when you could have done a different exercise, is it really worth it to do that exercise at the end of the day? And to me, the answer is no. Uh, I mean, goblet squats compared to back squats for a lot of populations I think the trade-off and the risk-reward is actually totally reasonable. So uh, in the aftermath of the episode, I probably just started taking a more critical look of everybody that would say something to me or everybody who had had a tweak or missed time because of uh, back squat or, or front less commonly a front squatting issue. Um, and, and even like just other athletes, you'd hear just someone in the weight room, maybe not even my own athlete, but somebody just saying, oh yeah, my back's sore from this and the back squats. And so often we think it's par for the course, but uh, I'd say that I've definitely, every single instance I take to heart a lot more. And you you throw out the notion that this is something that has to be there and you ask yourself if it's worth it. So again, I think that nobody just totally shifts their paradigm overnight. It takes a lot of steps and thoughts and reasoning to get there. And obviously if you listen to that episode with Mike Boyle, it didn't, he didn't overnight just all of a sudden decide that he wasn't going to do it. it. It was something that took some time. So I'm in the process of weighing some things. I would say my program is a lot more front squat and single leg squat dominant than it was before. I do still think front squatting is fine. I There are athletes I do keep on goblet squats for a while. I, I'm starting to have goblet squat minimum thresholds to earn front squatting. And I think that's valuable. Um, a lot of coaches use front squat to earn back squat, but I think it's not a bad idea to use the goblet squat to earn your front squat. Um, I just think it's a plus two and talking with Mike Robertson for the last podcast 
podcast episode that um, added advantage of front loading the weight. You're engaging the abs more uh, and then going through the PRI courses myself. And when I front load and goblet squat, you can feel your abdominal walls left and right. Um, usually for me, like that right's working harder than the other. So it's a screen as well. And it's just a really cool tool. So I'm learning a lot more about this whole uh, squat business, I guess you could say, as I move forward in the industry. And Mike Boyle certainly helped me along in that region, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, okay, next question is David Maris. He says, I'd love to hear your thoughts on alternating high-intensity days and low-intensity days versus alternating track days and weight days for sprint programming. So this is an awesome question. I'm super stoked that you asked this, David. And I guess this would be... You know, you could think of it like this, like, okay, here's training setup A. You sprint Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, you lift Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, you do like tempo or you know, fitness circuits type things or um, something that is a low intensity. So the typical high-low Charlie Francis, very common, probably the most common training method. Uh, if you look at like uh, some of the classical um, boost exonator programs, uh, very similar. Although if you listen to the podcast with Boo, you know that he definitely has a lot more tools in his toolbox than that. So, and actually I will reference something that he said in, in, when I kind of finish this answer, but, uh, the other day would be, uh, alternating track days and weight days. And, and so I'll list one of my favorite setups that I've used for great success with jumpers. I don't use it. I didn't use it as much with sprinters in my time as a full-time track coach, mostly because I was a jumper and that was something I could, like kind of resonate with and use my intuition more and, and sprinters. I think I was a little afraid to try it, but to be honest, in hindsight, I only had one, maybe two sprinters who would have really thrived on that uh, program. So anyways, uh, that would be doing like uh, weightlifting. So we're going to do our weight session on Monday. Um, and for me personally, I would usually throw in like some, some, um, what do you call it? Fascia based work. So it's like some skips or some rudiment hops or some tempo runs, uh, not a lot of volume, like, like three or four, 200 type tempo runs, not 10 by 200 silliness. Uh, so I do that. And then, uh, we come back uh, the next day and do a jump workout and plyometrics. And then Wednesday would be a recovery, a lot of variability circuit type thing. And we basically repeat the same thing Thursday and Friday again. So, uh, that would be an example of kind of a, not high low, but a, a medium high day, if you will. Um, the medium days are the weightlifting, the high days are the jump days. And so the differences between that and, and for sprints. And so I'll say, uh, I think it depends on the kind of sprinter. I think the people that respond best to that, um, that like medium high rest, medium high rest day are the people who are a little more high end neural. So you think a uh, neural, neural versus muscle driven athlete. And like, and I've been learning a lot about this from Christian Thibodeau stuff. You listen to him on Robbie Burke's podcast, some of the stuff he's written on Teen Nation on his own site. And you learn that really wired athletes, as far as Christian uh, will tell you, like the type ones, uh, they don't do as well when they take um, like extended days off. So if I did a workout and then uh, if they rest more than two days, their dopamine level drops and they they go flat. So the idea for them is the the back-to-back -back days with a little bit more intensity. Uh, and what I've found actually can keep that engine running really hot. And I found that you would have a better jump day by having a pro appropriately dosed uh, lifting day before it. Appropriate dosage is the key 
because if you, especially if that day is like a hypertrophy style day too, it's just going to mess up your jump day unless you're somehow intentionally meaning to do that, like a delayed gratification type vibe in your off season. But anyway, sorry, I digress a little bit. Um, and then Abu had mentioned too with doing something like lifting one day and jumping the next is you're going to access a slightly different motor pool. Because if you, uh, and that would probably be on the hypertrophy type thing, if you did a fatiguing, a muscle fatiguing workout on one day and then the next day you did jumping, you might find that your body would recruit different motor units. So I think there's, I the bottom line is I think there's advantages to both. Um, how I kind of went about it when I was uh, back in the full-time college track thing was I really liked starting out the year doing the typical Charlie Francis high-low. Um, we would do a lot of hill work in that time as well. And once we got into more of the, I guess, SPP phase, I would move my jumpers and, and vaulters to a um, uh, that medium high day. So going Monday, Tuesday, weights, then jumping replios, and then coming back on Tuesday or Thursday, Friday, same thing. And actually, even that jump squat, some people got pretty darn fast doing that. And the funny thing is we didn't even sprint a ton. Maybe it's that Jay Schrader vibe a little bit and not, you know, special exercises and getting the neural system right, not not sprinting. But I got some some jumpers pretty fast doing um, the plyo days. We did a lot of bounding circuits and those types of things and, and obviously a little bit of sprinting, but not a ton, um, not much at all. And then we had the, the, the little bit of the tempo or hallway runs on Mondays with the weights. But that was kind of it, and we got some athletes running really fast, and it worked really well. The, the only thing, though, that I found – and I think this is especially for um, for some athletes. Is some athletes are going to crash pretty hard uh, if you keep hitting them with that that um, that high intensity Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. They need breaks. Either you have to deload every third week, or you have to just kind of watch how their competitions are progressing, and you have to be careful with it. So, uh, just a few. That's just a few of my quick thoughts on that. I mean, personally, I prefer, and this is just me because I'm I'm more of a neural driven athlete, and I need that. Um, I need that weight room stimulus to make my jumps better, uh, over time. I found that does work well. The funny thing though is though too, is actually when I was in, in college and I was 21 and I, I had a great, um, you know, high jump, first time I high jumped seven feet. Um, actually the only time I jumped seven feet was, I was on more of a high, low type type day. But, uh, even in that, I think that I trained better. Uh, I, I mean, I was young and it was a good training environment. It worked. I accomplished it. Uh, it was great training, but I accomplished it in spite of a few things. I think that my optimal training was actually that that Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday setup, and I think a lot of athletes are the same. Okay, I could probably go on that forever, and we could talk about infinite scenarios, but I um, generally I think that uh, maybe a 400 runner type, so if you took it to just sprinters and track sprinters, 100, 200 types would probably be more likely suited for more work, a greater percentage of work in that um, higher Monday weights, Tuesday sprint type activity and then your 400 types may be more suited towards the more traditional uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday sprinting and Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday tempo and easy type work. Okay. I hope I, I was starting to ramble a lot there, but a lot of thoughts and, and not a lot of time to fully expand on all the possible case studies, but hopefully that helps you out. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Uh, okay, next question from NK Athletic Performance, which is, how do we get HR departments, head coaches, hiring managers, and sporting organizations to better understand what separates best SNC uh, coaches from the rest? 
Okay, so this is a great fully loaded question, and uh, I, I full disclosure, I'm not like a, a manager type. I, I don't have a managerial uh, job. I am only um, <laughs> I'm a little bit of a speculator sometimes, and, and those types of things, and and. So I can tell you what I think would be an interesting uh, scenario, and and maybe this would be like a dream world. But if there was, uh, and I, I think club or pro soccer is like this. I have a good friend who's a soccer coach, and he has all these uh, cl- or coaching certifications in the soccer system. And it sounds like the soccer system, you, they, that does matter a little bit more than say. USA track and field where everyone has their level one and two and, and who knows if you actually know anything if you went to those because I, I certainly have met a lot of coaches who have their level two and you would never know it but um, I think that if there was some sort of uh, certification card level system in both uh, general physical preparation because uh, strength coaches are GPP coaches and then possibly even SPP, so being different sports like cards and in, in, in knowledge of different sports and what goes on in different sports. Because uh, to be completely honest, I think that the if you can coach, you can coach. It's totally true. But I do think that there is something to being very uh, intuitive and knowledgeable about the inner workings of various sports. And maybe it even starts to go into James Smith's ideal of this this world where there's not really the strength coach, where it's the sport coach and the sport coach knows what's going on in the world of strength and conditioning because that is you look at track and field and that's the ultimate situation is where the track coach is doing it is doing the weightlifting and the on-track training when there's um unless they just have an amazing relationship with their strength coach and their strength coach is fully uh, knowledgeable and invested in track and field but otherwise it just doesn't it, it does tend to work a little bit suboptimally and you look at that um you look at that track and field paradigm and you would bring that over to other sports. But then the question is, is, uh, are those, are those team sport coaches, uh, will the culture ever be the point where they also, uh, the majority of them are also very proficient at the yearly training and organization and, and all that. So, uh, oh, well, the rabbit trail a little bit there. So, uh, if, if I was hiring and maybe I, I don't think that that's probably going to happen in the SNC field. I mean, we, we do have this, um, big data and who knows if it really does anything, but I mean, ultimately what comes down to is do you prevent injuries and, and can you improve the KPIs of the athletes you're working with? So I don't know if HR is ever going to look at that or understand that. Uh, if I'm hiring, I can tell you, uh, I'm looking for someone who has a strong drive for learning and being better. And I think with all the information that's out there in our field, if someone has a lot of credentials and they indicate a strong drive for learning and you can see that they're hungry mind, um, I think that's a good thing. I think with everything out there, there's a good chance that they are probably fairly knowledgeable. Uh, I also look for someone who walks the talk in their own training. I do think that's the point where, like we talk about these people who are just always throwing out research studies but don't know how to coach athletes. And I think that there even is something to having knowing you know yourself as your own best research study uh, I, I think there's that actually goes a long way to me and then uh, just having an ego that works well with the egos of those you work with and I think that is probably honestly the reason that people get hired and fired uh, outside of everything else and it actually is massively important so I probably completely bombed this question to be honest I, I think that it's going to be quite a while till a good answer is, is figured out. And it's, it's tough because it's, you know, strength and conditioning is probably one of the best, if not, or the toughest, if not the hardest profession to really get into. It's insanely competitive and there's, it's totally interdisciplinary too. And so there's so much to consider. 
So tough question. I don't know. I think you might have stumped me there. Uh, maybe I'll have to, it might be something I would just write an article about. <laughs> but uh, the thanks for asking that. I do appreciate it. And if any of you guys have any thoughts, I'd, I think leaving a comment on, on the uh, page on Just Fly Sports, I would like to hear what you have to say because I think that's something that a lot of people are looking for and considering and thinking about. Uh, next question, the dunking teacher says, what are your thoughts on microdosing? I usually only have 30 to 45 minutes to work out, but like to work out most days, so I believe I've been microdosing. Any tips on how to do it properly for jumping or speed training? I heard it about the podcast with uh, Schles Strength, um, which was, I think, on uh, recent on Robertson Training Systems and then also on Jay DeMeo's podcast. Um, so I think uh, microdosing, the first time I heard of it was uh, Derek Hansen kind of talking about it in terms of, I believe, in-season demands uh, when the the practice team practice schedules and player fatigue could be all over the place. And if you're going to go on the safe side, just do a very little bit um, more frequently and um, that to not put it, push athletes overboard. So I think that microdosing, I think it depends. Um, I think it can definitely work for a lot of athletes. Uh, just the, the question is how long will it work for you? Because uh, everyone's response pattern is a little different. I guess I can give you an anecdote. The best anecdote I have for my own self in the vertical jump realm is I tried a, a little experiment on depth jump microdosing where I would do a depth jumping every day. Um, and I found in one week I went from, I think this was, I don't remember how old I was. I wasn't in a great place in my own training uh, by any means, but uh, doing, uh, I just did about like 10 depth jumps a day. If I would have done more than that, I might've kind of blown my circuit, so to speak. But I ended up putting three inches on my vertical in one week doing that. But then that it tapped out like after one week, that was it. So it was like, really fast um, improvements and then and then the end so um, I think that the the biggest uh, benefit they can be is uh, is maybe two scenarios one if you need to make gains really quickly and this is just for pure performance only we're not talking about complementing team training and these things um, so one is just getting back up to speed really quickly if you've been stagnant um, doing something more frequently you can definitely get back in the swing of it faster from a skill perspective if you're doing that uh, <clears throat> once you get to a high level though you're likely going to be doing enough damage to your body on key workouts that you'll require uh, more rest and, and less frequency at some point so uh, at some point you'll have to get past it but I also think it, it's not a bad idea in stabilizing gains so if you have been training you're entering a competitive you know you have a good block of training and you're uh, you're 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 a jumping or speed guy. Let's see, or track sprinter, or a high jumper, and you've had a great block of training, and now you want to stabilize those gains for some comp competitive meets, like say the last three meets of the season. I think uh, a microdose based idea can also be effective, just because you want to keep things stable and you don't want to have any workout that pushes you over the top and messes things up. Um, so yeah, in the in those realms of both getting back up to speed and peaking, I think it's a safe and good idea. But outside of that, I don't have, really have enough experience to say using it as a solid uh, vertical jump training system, uh, if that makes sense. So uh, nice question though, thank you for asking that. Uh, next question is uh, D placement. He says, what types of recovery do you find most beneficial? Do you have a cycle uh, one order in order or the other you see best for optimal recovery? And do you have any other recovery method that is uh, less used? and worth exploring. Uh, okay, great question. Recovery is a big deal. Uh, so uh, let me be honest with you, I'm not a huge recovery guy. And I think maybe that's because I try to focus a lot of my mental energy on what I think I get the most bang for the buck on. 
And uh, in, in all these recovery methods over the years, um, some of the really common stuff like, like cold tubs and foam rolling and stretching, I think if you have the time, you know, do it. It's, it's not going to hurt you. Um, <laughs> uh, and if you think it's going to help you, then it's probably going to help you. But as I've kind of gotten older and, and gone through the ranks a little bit, uh, there's less and less things I think are really, really beneficial. But the number one thing by far is sleep. And sometimes I think about it in this way. Like if you could take that you know, 10 or 20 minutes you spent doing foam roller or ice bath and you slept extra instead, um, you know, would that be, what would be a better than the other? Uh, and I think a lot of times people could just, especially, uh, a lot of athletes these days, college athletes need the sleep. Um, if you're spending, you know, 20 minutes in the cold tub chatting with your buddy and then you're not, and you could have spent that on sleep and you're only getting six hours, you probably should be spending the extra bit on sleep. So I'm always, um, I'm always pretty big into that uh, in terms of, uh, maybe something that's, and, and again, not to say that I, I actually have gotten into cold therapy, not for recovery so much, but more like general health, like Wim Hof method stuff. I always do a cold shower in the morning. I just feel like it helps me from a general health perspective. I, if I don't do cold shower and if I eat a lot of like traditional uh, cereal in the morning, like milk, cereal, or oatmeal, I get dizzy in the late mornings. Um, if I do cold showers and have more protein breakfast, I'm good to go. So uh, I've, I've done it from that. I feel great. I, I've grown to like the cold more. I feel like uh, cold baths and those things are probably would be great for me and I, I have used them and, and have enjoyed them but I don't think it's necessarily going to work for everybody and the research would indicate that they're not super uh, they're not as good as what people might think they are I think that um, I think a, a recovery exercise worth exploring that I think there's a ton of power behind that people don't talk about is uh, visualization meditation uh, and mental training and I think doing visualization schemes like setting aside time to do a meditative state-based visualization on your body recovering and getting into the parasympathetic state is one of the best modalities that you can use because well one people don't do that stuff enough people don't um, de-stress and relax enough people don't get away from their phones enough uh, you can still be on your phone if you're on the foam roller and the tub or whatever you can see you can have your headphones on or, or whatever you're trying to do but I, once you have to do visualization meditation and and that type of thing you have to teach yourself to be present and aware and i think that's also important as well so um, yeah that's just my two senses i think uh sleep more sleep uh more uh, kind of meditative based practices and visualization uh, and within visualization too you can visualize like your body recovering in various ways shapes and forms and I think that's untapped. I think it's uh, something that hopefully more people will start utilizing, and I think it is uh, highly effective. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Next question is uh, Jake Tura. He says, have you experimented with the hyperarch training, and what are your views on Chong Ji's philosophy? Personally, how do you think a rigid foot should be trained for? So uh, my answer to this is, I think Chong is right on. I'm I was super excited to have him on the show, and so I've ever since the show, and it's kind of cool. Like I can say ever since this show, this is what I started doing with my athletes or thinking about doing. Or uh, and so right off the bat, I um uh, with uh, my a group of men's tennis players that I train, I was instantly and I'd done this before a little bit, making them do a few things barefoot here and there. But I, we started doing a lot of stuff barefoot, and I started kind of look, you know, just really observing the guys how they moved. Uh, how their jumping ability or sprinting ability compared with uh, their weight room lifts 
and just kind of taking that all in, I realized, wow, these guys all have really, um, really flat feet and they don't have a lot of them too had like, uh, even, uh, toes that would, would, would curl, but not like the right way. Like the, the second, um, metatars, what is it? MTP joint, I think would like kind of sag in the middle and you had these, um, just a lot of, uh, anything, but, uh, the, the foot that Chong talks about. And so I think that rigid foot is, is just massive. Oh, and actually speaking of tennis too, uh, you look at like Rafael Nadal's foot, one of the best in the game, and he has that hyper arch foot. You look at the best players and you are almost always going to see, especially the best athletic players. You will almost always invariably, if they have their shoes off or even their socks, so you can see it, they have that foot. And so the more you see that, the more you make that connection, the more you say, Hey, I think that maybe this is something that we should be training for. So uh, to establish buy-in with my tennis guys, I, sh- I put a picture up of Nadal's foot. And I'm like, hey, this is kind of what we're, we're going for, okay? Like we want to have more power, um, you know, in that, in the hitting those winners. And, and we want to be able to apply more power from the ground up into our bodies to to do all these things. And, and it's important. It's important to move what, whatever your sport is. So uh, in terms of my own experimentation, it's interesting because um, I, I, I guarantee I've had the hyperarch. At least I had it up until my, my mid to late 20s. And then it's, I started to regress. Um, and the reason I did is because, well, a few things. One, I started to have some Achilles tendon issues. Uh, and so that uh, started to limit the amount of uh, running and plyometrics I was doing to maintain my fascial systems. And uh, I had just gotten, too, as I had just kind of gotten into weightlifting, that weightlifting hole for a long time. I shouldn't call it a hole, but like a, a validating, like just trying to really max out those lifts, thinking that they're a, an end of themselves, not an end to a means. Uh, and then just basically not thinking about these two animals. You have this animal, the fascial system, and you have this animal, the weight, the strength, and muscle system. And depending on what athlete you are, you need to feed one animal predominantly. If you're a track and field high jumper and you're you get to college and all of a sudden you're you never lifted and now you're lifting three days a week and you're not you're feeding that muscle system and your your fascia system is kind of like oh what's going on here like and a lot of high jumpers invariably don't do very well their freshman year of college you see it all the time and so that's an extreme example because a high jumper is a pure fascial athlete but um, it's, it's really important. I think it's really important. So, and Chong highlights how Stefan Holm would run up to the bar, very toey. I have a video of a dunk contest when I was in high school and I ran the exact same way, like super high up on the toe, uh, tons of rigidity in the foot. And I didn't, I don't know what my foot looked like back then. Maybe I can find a barefoot picture somewhere in there, uh, myself, but I, I guarantee you I had it. And, and, but you watch how I ran and up to the, you know, to dunk even, even a few years later and it wasn't the same. I started to lose it. It's just, and a lot of it was actually stop not playing basketball competitively anymore that killed it. And so, um, doing, I, I've been using like the hyper arch type hop work and you start to feel you, it's like almost nostalgia. It's memory lane. You start to feel what your legs felt when you were playing basketball and jumping and it starts to come back to you a little bit. So I think it's huge. I think it's stuff's going to change the industry. I hope a lot of coaches, uh, get on board and start to really uh, implement that for their athletes. So training the foot, I, I definitely had made a huge uh, goal of making that a big thing on the podcast and and having some of these great people like Emily Splickle and Chong have really uh, been impactful for me. So yes, I think the foot should be absolutely trained for rigid foot, no doubt. There's only one exception. The one exception is long course swimming. 
you do not want a hyperarch foot that will hurt you very badly. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, next question is uh, Brandon McKnight. He says, Joel, do you have any thoughts on developing athleticism, speed, and power for martial arts or combat sports? More generally, what are some bang for your buck things I can do to develop my base of speed and power athleticism? Having not come from a team sport track and field background, thanks. Brandon, uh, okay, cool. So thank you for asking this, Brandon. It actually brings me uh, back a little bit. I think it was episode 20 on the podcast. I had Corey Peacock on. He uh, works with the Black Zillions MMA team. Uh, it was a great talk with him. And if I could just give, I, I don't work with MMA athletes. I don't work with fighters. I don't work with combat sports. I f- totally respect those th- those sports. And if honestly, if I had more time, I'd probably spend some time watching them. I really, I think that everything that goes into them is really cool. But um, I remember what Corey was saying is he was just talking about how the utilization of short sprints and the explosiveness in those athletes. And I think you can't go wrong with just putting short splints, short maximal, key being maximal sprints in your program. So and like racing people, getting a competitive element into it. I think sprinting with a heavy sled isn't a bad idea. Um, just like it's it's going to be great neuromuscular recruitment. Uh, I think that it's just uh, maximal sprinting is good for almost every athlete. You heard Boosh Shexenator. He was on the podcast talking about how he put a few inches on volleyball players' vertical jumps just by having them do maximal sprinting as a potentiation mechanism. So there's so much to be found in sprinting. I do think that it has value, and I think Corey Peacock would say it has value even for MMA athletes. Uh, next question is uh, Coach Morrow. He said, in your latest article, you praise Christian Thibodeau's book, uh, theory and application of modern strength and power methods as being one of the best. Do you have any other book recommendations for developing athletes, especially books that may be under the radar? Cool. I, I was like questions on books. I'm a big reader. Um, I my, I'd say my amount of training books I've read have gone off just a little bit in the last few years. Uh, but I still try to keep up with, um, I still try to keep up with things as best I can. And I had heard, actually I'd heard, uh, from someone else, I that Christian Thibodeau's book was amazing, and I forget who it was, but I bought it, and I totally felt the same thing. It's it's one of those books that I feel like every strength coach should read. It's just it is just ridiculous. It's awesome. Uh, there's so many uh, great applications, and, and Christian Thibodeau is an awesome coach too. I've been learning more from him, I would say, this last two or three months than than anyone else, and so he's had a real big impact on where my philosophy is headed. Uh, so other books I've read though, so I, I say this a lot, is the, my, my big books are Easy Strength by Dan, John, and Pavel, Triphasic Training by Cal Dietz, Special Strength Manual for Coaches by Verkashansky. Uh, I've read the Mike Boyle Functional Training Series, which have had an impact on me. Tudor Bampa's um, Periodization for Sports was one of the first books I ever read and bought, had a big impact on me. Uh, I wouldn't say I, I go full classical periodization like he did, but his, some of his stuff is really cool, like his plyometric methods and means and power and alternating max strength and power. Amazing stuff. Uh, under the radar books. So I'm going to give you two that I think are pretty darn cool that I think more people should read. And those are uh, Alex Vasquez's books. So Alex Vasquez, he ran, runs or used to run a site, Evolutionary Athletics. Uh, was very popular, I think, coming off of those InnoSport days, Jay Schrader. Uh, when Jay Schrader was really hitting popularity with Adam Archuleta in that, I think it was like the mid to late 2000s period, but he has two books and there's the 16 week athletic domination manual and the sky high vertical jump program. I've read both of those books probably like three or four times. They're not long. Actually, they're very short and practical. And 
I read they've made a really big impact on just because I've been on a big thing on trying to really find the essence of like Jay Schrader and the you know sport programs and and learn a little bit more about applying that applying long duration isometrics and it's just good stuff I, I've seen great results implementing the information from those books I know Alex got great results with his his athletes from those books they are outside the box they will make you think differently um, they'll they are not, again another way that, that makes you realize that, that there are many roads to Rome uh, but I think that that um, his system is a great road to Rome. So definitely check those out. They're cool stuff. Thierry Training, next question. He says, in a general overview, how would you pro- program a plyo and strength program for an athlete training for a marathon? Really happy you asked this question because uh, I've worked with, um, actually I haven't for the last two years, I have not been working with any track distance runners, but I did for the about a decade before that. So it's actually uh, a the strength training for distance running is very near and dear to me. And I, um, so I, I'm really happy to answer this question. And I'll start with this is, uh, athletes who are training for endurance are always riding the razor's edge between being hurt and not being hurt because, uh, running 60, 70, well, if you're running, training for a marathon, who knows a hundred or more miles a week, uh, your body's on the edge. I mean, a lot of people get hurt. A lot of people get stress fractures doing that, uh, more extreme, types of training especially a lot of athletes who aren't really truly built for long distance running so when you're riding the razor's edge and and i got this from phil london who is a brilliant coach up in minnesota and phil was saying that when you're already on that edge why tip people over the edge or potentially tip people over the edge by throwing plyometrics in the pot you know you're already you're already kind of exposing your tissues to all these stress so uh throwing in that plyometric stress uh, might not be the best idea. Now, I think that it's funny because you talk, you would ask a marathoner or a 10K runner, well, what's plyometrics? And they'd be like, they'd show, start doing some A skips and tail kicks and stuff and say, oh, yeah, I'm doing plyometrics. And if that's your plyometrics, then totally fine. That's cool. But I, what I'm saying to avoid would be like hurdle hops and bounding and, and anything that's more intense, has any more intensity to it. Uh, I think that those uh, athletes, uh, for in terms of strength training, I think strength training is good. But for the higher up you go, the less of a huge deal it is. Uh, but I think that just basic like goblet squats, uh, a series of lunges, maybe some barbell step-ups, uh, some glute work is very important, I will say, um, before I get too far. And uh, I know Brett Contreras, he would get emails all the time from uh, distance runners, especially who said they've been running faster after using the barbell hip thrust. And you look at distance runners and uh, it's just, it is more efficient for a distance runner to have a hamstring dominant strategy because of the energy transport. If it, if the body stiffens up the hamstring and tightens it up, it can be a very like, it's like a, a stiff rubber band <laughs> type vibe. Uh, but then the glute doesn't do anything. Uh, and, you know, if you're training out for, for the big race, you do want um, some glutes. Oh, the glutes are also kind of a costly muscle. So the body, if you're doing all those miles, the body might really try to downregulate the glutes. But for one race, you do want some glutes, okay? I mean, they, it's not a sprinter booty, but you want some glutes. So doing some basic, like maybe a single leg hip thrust or a, uh, just a barbell hip thrust, just enough to get the basic motion. Or even you could go 45-degree hyper uh, kickbacks, leg press kickbacks, or pendulum kickbacks. Uh, some sort of glute exercise should definitely be in there. 
And outside of that, just functional training. That's kind of my vibe on, on what worked well for those athletes. Something I also liked too was doing uh, hanging lunges. So you're hanging from a bar and holding a lunge position, trying to really flex that back glute. And then maybe you'd hang a chain off your back leg. I actually got that one from Dan Fichter. And I always use that with the distance runners. Uh, when I trained them, really liked it. They seemed to like that. And it also that seemed to have some good application with who was fast. So uh, get their nervous system through that, uh, not plyometrics. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Okay, uh, next is uh, Seth the Kicks Kid. He says, how do you properly push when sprinting, talking about acceleration to max velocity, and how to drill properly pushing? So uh, the man, I'll tell you what, the man asked for this is Adarian Barr. Uh, he's been uh, helping me and mentoring me over the last year. He was on a podcast recently, and he's the guy who I kind of really got an innate idea of what it really means to push and sprinting from. So just defining the push, that's if you look at that right about that point when the foot is about to leave the ground and sprinting or right about when the, the thigh of the stance leg is perpendicular to the ground, look at what the angle is between uh, at the knee. How much knee flexion do you have? Or basically how far is the foot behind the hips when that swing thigh is perpendicular to the ground? So hopefully I keeping that fairly simple, you can see in your mind's eye what I'm talking about. Uh, a good push is when the foot is farther behind the body in that position, because I mean, think about it this way, you are trying to run horizontally. And we do talk about vertical forces, vertical forces, vertical forces. But when we just take that, it's, it's both in top end sprinting. Eventually you get to a point where when you slow down is when you can no longer Put, continue to put horizontal force into the ground is when you slow down. And yes, we need vertical force to sprint. Yes, I know that. But you need a good push too to run fast. And that's actually something that held me back from being fast. Well, one is I had weak hamstrings, and maybe this is why my push was bad. But if you watch a high jumper run, um, or sometimes you watch people doing wicket drills and they're just being coached on vertical forces, you'll see this. But like, you'll see that leg hit the ground, the thigh is perpendicular to the ground, and the foot is not very far behind the body. It's a very, very vertical push. It's a very like, it's almost like a golf ball bouncing on a, uh, a concrete vert vertically, but not very fast horizontally. So how do you uh, get that better? Uh, well, I think one thing is uh, just simply to make athletes aware of it. And I think actually not overly coaching, not over coaching the vertical aspect. But one, uh, one thing I'll mention, and uh, I learned this from a Darian, is, is uh, the idea of doing squat, what he calls squatty runs. <laughs> so actually intentionally running, it seems counterintuitive, but doing acceleration running with uh, actually lower hips than normal, which forces you into that position where you're actually pushing and you also have to recover the leg in front of you faster. So again, it's just a drill. It's not it means to an end. You don't want to actually run like that. And then also, uh, in terms of pushing, you need to look at what your arms are doing. So in acceleration, we can say particularly um, the arm driving down helps the ipsilateral or same side leg deliver force to the ground. That's another thing I learned from Adarian. So that arm needs to be aggressive. A lot of times we kind of think of just, you know, shade the sun, throw your arm passively back, and you'll magically run fast out of the blocks or whatever. But the arm has to drive down and forward. And that was a thing that actually Darian has helped me with personally recently, my acceleration. And I've been considering now is the ability, this need to drive your arms harder out the front to help the leg push harder. 
So uh, it's it's gonna be a lot of things. I don't think there's one magic cue for everybody, but hopefully those two ideas can actually um, give you a little bit more insight into that aspect of running. Okay, next question is Michael Drock training. He says, is there any research on doing lightly weighted uh, top end speed work? For example, using a weighted vest no heavier than 5% of body weight and doing flies while wearing it. It is something that makes sense in my head and that I've used in short phases with my athletes with good uh, and top end mechanics, but I've never seen research for or against it. Uh, yeah, that's a great question, Michael, and thanks for that. I've to be completely honest, I would say I am not 100% sure. I don't know of any research at least, but I think that if they, if someone isn't losing mechanics and it's 5%, I really don't think it's a problem. Uh, I mean, it makes me think, I mean, optimally you probably would want to use uh, maybe not a vest, but some sort of belt system like an Exergenie or obviously if you uh, had the money for it, a 1080 sprint, those types of things are awesome uh, because you can really dial things in. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'd be interested in hearing your results. I think if their technique isn't dropping off, I, I don't see a whole lot wrong with that per se. So uh, thanks for the question though. I'm sorry I couldn't give you a better answer there. Uh, last, we have uh, Jay Gill, 182. He says, for an athlete with an intermediate skill set, how would you have them practice their skill during training? For example, trying to dunk for the first time, would it be better to spend one session per week doing this? Do about five, 10 jumps per session? And what volume would this be in the training? 20% perhaps. This is assuming there's no competitive season or set timeline. And if we want to get specific, I am the member of the Legendary Athleticism Training Group. Uh, for those of you out there, that's an online training group that I that I run. Uh, and so I feel like if I need to, so if I feel like I need to jump more, how do I get this in? Okay, so basically asking if you're trying to dunk and you're trying a training program, a strength training program, or power training program, how many days a week should you uh, be practicing your skill? of actually dunking so again this isn't going to be the same for everybody uh, some athletes will do better two times a week three times a week it's just some athletes just want to get out there and dunk more often it's it's some of it is like mental and desire to do those things um, i've i've found that the bell curve not everybody but the bell curve generally does best um, with about two times a week so and you can almost look at it as how i had structured for my track and field jumpers we did our jump stuff on Tuesday and Friday. Each jump day wasn't the same. So I actually recommend if you're doing a skill to do different skills, like one day, maybe Tuesday, if you're jumping on Tuesday, do low rim, low rim dunking. And if you're on Friday, try for your full, full dunking, or maybe one day the emphasis is on vertical height and dunking. And the other emphasis on the other day could be on a horizontal projection. Uh, so just mixing those things up is important for the variability involved. I've gotten the best results from probably about twice a week doing that. But there's people who certainly could do more. You could also microdose it. Again, if you're on another strength program uh, and you want to make sure that you don't uh, that you don't compromise the results of your your strength program. If the if the uh, block if the if you're really trying to get strength and power out of that block. Uh, and you didn't want to, I guess, mess up uh, the next workout in line by doing a bunch of dunks, you could always do less. So uh, you could just do five dunks a day or something like that, or five attempts a day after the work. After the workout is a good time as well, especially after like the main block of work because you're a little bit more potentiated. And it's also good too, your body tends to remember the last thing you did in a workout. So if you end the workout with something fast, you're gonna go into the next one more recovered, 
feeling better. It just always seems, no matter who I've heard it from, I've always heard doing sprinting or strides or jumping or plyos at the end of the workout, whatever it is, you always seem to do a little bit better. So I would say the end of the workout, either twice a week in probably a slightly higher volume, uh, maybe 10 to 15 jumps, or maybe microdosing four days a week, uh, possibly five with five jumps a session, I think would be pretty solid. Uh, at least would be a good start. So, okay. Uh, well, you know what? That does it for the questions for this particular episode, episode four. Thank, uh, or not episode four, episode 71, Q&A number four. For everyone who sent a question in, thank you very much. I do appreciate it. Before we go, please don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. Uh, they got the free lap timing system, K-Box, Gym Aware. They got force plates, power dot muscle stimulators, and a lot of this stuff, if you are a U.S. customer, you're going to get it for cheaper because the shipping is less for some of these international items. So just a great company to do business with, amazing customer service, simplyfaster.com. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest.